we're continuing in our, in our series through James, and this is what I learned today when I was studying this book. <clears throat> a man named Giles Brandreth wrote a book that he called The Joy of Lex. Lex being, you know, a, I think the Latin root for like lexicon for words. So The Joy of Lex, how to have fun with 860,341,500 words. According to his research, that's how many words we speak in our lifetime. Is that a surprise to you, or does that track, or it's just like, I don't know, it could be two billion. It doesn't make sense to me anyways. It's just a giant number. Well, he, he says, um, to help bring that into context, about one-fifth of our lives are us opening our mouth and talking, communicating. I do want to say that, that I think that number includes text messages and emails as well, but one-fifth of our life is used up by talking or using words to some extent with one another. And so Giles, when he wrote this book, he's like, I want you to enjoy those words. If you are going to say that many things, if you are going to potentially communicate that many words to someone else, and what I want to do is to uh, make sure that you enjoy it, but I kind of want to challenge the other side of that and ask this question. Do others enjoy the way you use your words? Are other people excited when you open your mouth to communicate to them because we know that sometimes words can hurt. I want to give you just one example of something uh, that hit me. <clears throat> this was a, uh, uh, so my, 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 my parents at this point were, were not together. They were divorced and I was visiting dad, visiting mom, like living with mom, visiting dad on the weekends. And I was really into some comic book. I don't know what it was. Some, something that had just come out, the comic book just released and I'm like, oh, I'm visiting dad. I'm going to like Dad, can I get this comic book? And, you know, like kind of turning it on real thick, like, oh, are you sure? Oh, hey, you didn't think about maybe a comic book or anything like that in our near future, did you? Like kind of constantly maybe badgering, trolling him a little bit with it. And we're out in this thing, and I see it on a, on a stand. I'm like, Dad, can we get the thing? And then he, he looks at me, and he said this. He said, sometimes I think you only visit me so that I'll buy you things. Now, as a dad, like, I could say something like that. He didn't really mean it as anything more than a flippant, like, hey, stop, like, calm down, right? He was frustrated. I remember the moment I was, like, pulling on his shirt and bothering him about it. But those words stuck with me, and he doesn't know this. He didn't. I mean, he's passed away now when I was 19. Um, I never, it was sixth grade, <laughs> no joke, I never asked my dad for anything ever again from that moment. Now, I didn't live with him, so it wasn't like I, I was dependent on that. But with one caveat, I asked him for a loan when I got my first car in, when I was 19, and I paid it back as quickly as possible. Because I wanted to prove what he said to me wrong. That's not why I'm visiting you. And I don't ever want you to think that. In fact, I even projected that onto God as my spiritual father. And I felt like, man, there's so many needs out there. This person's in poverty. These people don't even have a bed. This is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to not ask God for things. Well, it says, if you have something on your heart, go to God for it. This petition. No, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to do that. And it took me a while to realize that I connected what happened with my, God, with my dad to God. And then God did a work in my life and spoke over me. No, I'm, I'm the father of lights. And every good and perfect gift comes from me. And he did something miraculously that I didn't realize. He put something in my life that was not of my own volition, extravagant, something I could never afford, would never buy. And I found it at a flea market and God spoke these words to me. Who do you think gave you that? 
And so there's this thing that can happen with words. I've also seen people use words in a powerful way. I've talked about this guy, Randy. He was a disciple in my life right out of college. One of the first positions of ministry I ever had were under him as a sponsor. And then he handed off that youth ministry to me when he went to go plant a church. And I watched Randy over and over and over again speak life and build people up and talk over them, speak words over them that were sometimes, I think, prophetic. Maybe whether he knew that or not, they just had this weight of authority to them. And my mom was visiting me at college one day, and we were hanging out here, and he just starts saying, hey, man, like, she's not sure how, you know, she doesn't know what, how I'm doing, you know, all these different things. And he just starts saying things that are nice about me to her. Man, he's such a blessing to us. He does all these things to help, and I, I can always trust him. And my mom, you can see it's emotionally affecting her. And he's like, yeah, and you, he switches. You have done a great job raising this young man. You have done this thing. I don't know if my mom remembers it today. I mean, she's maybe watching online right now, so she can maybe text me and tell me, do you remember that, mom, that moment? But Randy just started building into her to the extent that she just starts bawling in front of us, sits down on the couch in the youth room, and is just so overwhelmed with gratitude because of the words that this guy was speaking over her. Now, that's just my mom. I saw him do it over and over and over again to the extent that I remember saying, God, whatever he's doing, I want to be able to do that. And so there's times I feel like I have walked in that and times that I've not walked in that. And so this is what I want to do. We, we were in the habit for a while of doing this. I did a couple weeks ago. This is what I want you to do. Share with somebody around you, a, a neighbor, a friend, somebody who's a part of your family unit or not. Um, just kind of share this. What's a time in your life when somebody spoke into your life in a way that was positive and stuck with you? All right? Just one quick liner. I'm going to give us about one minute to do that. But just kind of remind yourself and tell somebody else the quick 30-second story and then trade up, tell the other 30-second story. What's a time when somebody spoke into your life and it blessed you to the extent that you even remember it today? All right, let's go ahead and do that now. You can share. One minute. Go for it. background music. That was, uh, was nice, uplifting. But hopefully you had a story or two or maybe three and you had to decide which one you were going to move on today. I don't think it's a surprise, right? We, we know that words have power. Amen? Amen? <laughs> and it goes both ways. Uh, it could be good or bad. You can deny it. We say sticks and stones can break our bones, but words will never hurt us. But we know that they can. In fact, Proverbs 18, 21 says this, the tongue has the power of life and death. And so we could all go around probably sharing things that were spoken to us, spoken over us, things that went into us like a precision blade that hurt because someone used words that verbally attacked. And this is what James is going to do for us. James 3, 1. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Chapter 3, we're going to do verse 1, and I think we're going to go to 12, and then we'll be done for the day. 
says this, James 3, 1, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. And so the first thing that James does is he opens up with this warning to teachers. People like me, people who have influence inside of a crowd, their words have a communal impact. And he wants them to know that they weigh heavy because they can do things in mass that a word to a single person can't do. And so he's telling them, you know, be cautious. There is a responsibility that you hold if you're going to stand in front of people and teach, whether it's talking about God's word or otherwise. And the tongue, and what his warning includes in here is that the tongue relative to the rest of the body, it's just a tiny organ, it's a small muscle, right? And so it has this capacity to deceive us because its devastation is larger, is more immense than the size of the organ would indicate for us. So it's very powerful, it's very significant. What it reveals is that what is in our heart can come out And if we're not in control of this, that heart thing shows. And what it can do is cause in your life problems and problems for others around you. So it's not just a personal thing, it's a public thing. So to prove his point, James is going to go in, he's going to give us three real life examples from his culture, right? Some of them don't quite play, but I'll help us translate those things. Three examples from his culture to illustrate the idea that something small can do big things. And he talks about a horse first, then he's going to give us a ship, and then a fire. This is what it says, verse two, sorry, verse three. It says, when we put bits in the mouth of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. So the first example or object lesson he gives us is a horse's bit. I think we have a picture of that. Now, if you've been around horses a lot, you know exactly what this is. Uh, But the bit is that metal piece there. And this is kind of a fancy one. It's attached to leather and strapped to the the mouth of uh, the the horse. Uh, And sometimes they're just little tiny pieces of metal, just one bar that goes across. uh, And it gives you different capabilities. Well, a horse, in the time that James is writing these things, is seen as a powerful, but not just powerful, a dangerous animal. It's used for difficult, laborious projects. So if you can't get it done in your own strength or in multiple human capabilities, you tie a horse to it, you till the land, you pull a stagecoach, you do all kinds of things that allow it the ability, its strength, its power, the ability to accomplish laborious projects that we can't. But even more important is it's dangerous. They send these things into battle. Because they have this massive strength, these physical capabilities. You sit high up on the horse. It can run right through things, trample things. It has all of these physical capabilities. In fact, a horse with, uh, with, a, with a chariot behind it, an armored chariot, would be the first century equivalent to a tank on the ground level today. So the more horses and chariots you have would be like having multiple tanks in a battle if you had to go uh, to war with someone. And so here's the, here's the point that maybe I'm overstating here, but I want us to capture the imagery. Even with the power and danger of this wild horse, humans can use just a tiny device, a small thing, a piece of metal strapped to a piece of leather to control it. When you pull left, that horse goes left, and when you pull right, that horse goes right. When you pull back at the same time, the horse knows when to stop. I think that's correct. If you're an equestrian, then maybe you can correct me later, but that's close enough. You can guide this thing. We harness the wild energy of this animal, domesticate it, so that it works in our favor. 
He goes on to give us another example in verse 4. It says this. Verse 4, or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. So the second example is a ship, and we also have a picture of a first century ship. Now what's different is we're used to seeing that rudder if you have like a motorboat or you've been on a motorboat or a pontoon boat. It's just a piece that kind of goes behind the propeller that directs it so it goes back and it's even smaller today. At this time, it was these two paddle looking things. They were set stationary and you would have somebody kind of move it left or right so that the paddle itself would go left or right inside of the water. Now, what, what, it, what he does is he, he points out that this ship, inside of his example, driven by strong winds, is a large vessel and, and encounters powers on the sea. Strong winds, waves, currents, things that would toss it about left and right. But if you have this small piece of wood, this rudder, then you can maintain or change directions, even against those currents. You can take the cargo from one place to another. In fact, without the rudder, the ship is worthless. It doesn't matter how big it is. It doesn't matter how uh, fancy or decorative it is. If the ship has no rudder, it's a worthless container floating about with no direction. And so he gives this example. It's like the rudder that tells the ship where to go. And then he finally gives us one more, and I think it's the most poignant. Likewise, verse 5, likewise... The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by what? What's the word it uses? You following along? Hell. There's a part of me that's like, geez, James, back off, man. Like, hell? Why do we have to take it that far? Well, remember, his rhetoric has been pretty sharp up till now. It continues forth as he's trying to make his point, and he says it. It sets one's life on fire. Is itself set on fire by hell? By, uh, sorry, set on fire by hell. What he's trying to do is to make an understanding that there is a bodily connection to when we cannot keep ourselves under check. Then our, then our lives have a directional or even hell-like example or impact on the earth. So I wanted to qualify this. Um, has anyone been involved in a forest fire where maybe their belongings, their house, or something was in danger? Anyone? You can raise your hand if you have. No one, no one quiet, but maybe you know someone. If you've been in California, yeah, we got one hand raised. If you've been to California, um, you know that this has happened before, but I, I wanted to check this out. Can a tiny spark really do something like that? Doesn't it take a little bit more? I mean, when I set a fire, it takes me like 20 minutes. I gotta fan that flame. I gotta get the kindling straight. I gotta get the fire in there and blow on it and light it again and blow on it and light it again. This last time we went camping and the friends who went with us just showed up with one of those starter logs and I was amazed at how quickly he could do it. But think about one spark. So CNN reported this. About the, Mende the Mendocino fire that raged during the summer of 2018 in Northern California. It says that this fire was the largest wildfire in California history in terms of acres burned, was caused by a spark or hot metal fragment that came from a hammer driving a metal stake into the ground. 
According to the California Fire Department and Forestry Division and Fire Protection, one report said after a meticulous and thorough investigation, CAL FIRE has determined that the ranch fire was caused by a spark or hot metal fragment landing in a receptive field bed. The news release mentioned that it burned 410,000 acres, heavily taxed the resources, so they had to remove firemen from other areas to come help this fire, and it destroyed 280 structures. All of this destruction ignited from one tiny little spark, and it seems like it came from a hammer and a tent peg. So it's possible, it, it checks out all of these examples that he's talking about, something so tiny can do something more massive than you ever thought it could. Every single one of these examples is him trying to prove the point, serving this one idea, do not underestimate the power of the tongue. Do not underestimate the power of the tongue. Compared to the rest of the body, it might be small, but it has the ability to be more dangerous than the rest of the body. So Uncle James is standing in the group in the family, and he's like, look, so like you think you can throw hands, but I'm telling you the tongue is way more dangerous. Oh, you, you've got, you watched Karate Kid, and you saw him take down that Cobra Kai guy with the crane kick. Well, I'm telling you the tongue is a hundred times more lethal, deadly, and dangerous than any hands, punch, or kick that you could deliver to anyone. Beware the tongue. Beware the tongue. It is this gatekeeper to a wild, undomesticated, and sinful heart that often lives inside of us. It's a small part. It steers the directions of our human vessel as a ship does, and it can cause a fire through a tiny spark. Do not underestimate the power of the tongue and the damage it can cause. So James is trying to make sure they get this point. I'm going to give you this example. I'm going to give you this example. I'm going to give you this example. Beware. Now, he's going to take a little different of a direction. He's going to stick with the animal kingdom for some reason. Um, so if you like animals, you'll like this next analogy in verse 7. But what he wants to do is to make another point here. He says, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures are being tamed. They have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Well, it's true. And even today we see more and more, right? We have tamed all kinds of of animals in our day. Predators, scavenging dogs that are now just house pets. Birds of prey. Have any of you been to one of those avian shows where they're sending vultures and hawks and stuff and someone's got the glove? And you kind of like wonder, if this thing really wanted to, it could attack any one of us at any point in time. We train elephants to do circus tricks, right? And this next, I got this picture. This is what amazes me the most. Sea creatures. Look at this guy. What are you doing? I mean, you, you have a, an animal that we call a killer whale, and this dude is putting his head in the mouth of the animal. Well, he's trained it, and he trusts his training. He's sitting in a situation that I would just look at and say, nope, I'm not doing that. That's for someone else. Y'all can trust your trainings. Humans have accomplished all of this, but, but, but what James wants us to see is that he he knows that still the beast of the tongue continues to elude us over and over again. It's untamable. You know, after all this, what 
He, he uses this phrase at the end of what we just read. I want to read it to you again. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. This is a reference towards a common Jewish idiom. We've actually talked about it before. Literally translated, it says tongue of evil at the end there of restless evil. And in the Hebrew, they have this term that they use called Lashon Hara. Would you say that with me? Lashon Hara. Let's try it again, y'all. Lashon Hara. There you are. I get you. This is a term that they'll use, like you do not commit Lashon Hara. And it's a phrase that's spoken all the time. I mentioned to you that my wife, um, when she was working for the Jewish school, she would hear people talk about this all the time. And so this term, Lashon Hara, meaning that the tongue is evil, um, it, it's similar to gossip. But it's a little different. It's similar to backbiting or rumor-mongering, slandering someone, a misuse of your words in speech. And he's directly referring to this idea, the Talmud, which is an ancient commentary used by Jewish people and Christian scholars even today, condemns Lashon Hara, Har, Lashon Hara severely saying this. If one speaks Lashon Hara, it is as though they have denied God. The sin of Lashon Hara is weighed equally with other sins, idolatry, sexual immorality, even murder sins for which there are very severe consequences. So there's this long history that James is trying to surface for this group of people that he's talking to that digs deep into the Jewish faith, even to a tradition wherein this idea of Lashon Hara holds with it, this is something we don't do. We tame the tongue. We don't have tongues of evil. In fact, it's even evil to speak something that is negative, even if it's true. Catch that. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and you're like, well, I mean, what I'm saying is true at least. I'm not, I'm not lying. I'm not making this up. And we kind of give ourselves a pass in that situation. And they're saying if it speaks negatively, even presumes like, hey, they're not going to win that game. That's Lashon Hara. Do you capture what they're saying? Like the depths of this negativity is so powerful to him that he's like, I want you to tame your tongue. Guard this thing because Lashon Hara can destroy things can destroy people. In fact, one person that, that I read, basing off of Psalm 34, 12, and 13, says, whoever of you loves his life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue, that word lashen, from evil, raw, and your lips from telling lies. So catch this, whoever of you loves and desires to see many good days. There's an entire book written on this one scripture verse that over and over directly connects the way you speak to the quality of life that you carry. And so he's saying, look, your own life is connected to good days, uh, long days, uh, that you would have days that are fulfilling if you can keep your Lashon Hara under check. He points out here that there is practical advice. I want to read this one to you. Um, I loved his statement. He says, beware of Lashon Hara when speaking on the telephone. I love this. If the person with whom you are conversing insists on relating Lashon Hara, you should rebuke them. If this is not possible, find an excuse to hang up. Excuse me, something has just come up, and I need to discontinue conversation. His technology is a little bit outdated, <laughs> but does this not communicate in an entire world of online communication tools that we have at our access today? 
that give us lots and lots of opportunities to curse or to bless. We have social media, we have email, we see it in cyberbullying and the ramifications over and over of what that does to someone. It creates all kinds of opportunities for us to bless or curse. And I don't know exactly what I would say in application other than we should consider that in our modern day forms of communication. Is what I'm writing considered Lashon Hara, an evil tongue? Well, James' letter will take us one step just a little deeper um, in verse 9. Let's read it together. It says this, verse 9, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Now the obvious point is that there are things that cannot be together. But there's also things that just should not be together. And so a spring that has a well deep inside cannot produce both fresh and um, salt water. A tree cannot produce any other fruit than the one that is specific to that tree and what it produces. Otherwise, it is simply just not that tree, right? Likewise, a mixture of both praising God and cursing God from the same mouth, especially when we speak to image bearers of God just should not flow from the same place. And so James suggests that perhaps there is something deeper going on when he says this. The tongue and the words which flow forth from the mouth are actually, they're really just revealing the heart from which it is attached. That the tongue exposes the intentions of our mind and our hearts and reveals what kind of water is deep down inside of our well. What kind of tree is it that is producing the fruit that is coming up and out of our mouths? Our tongue reveals who we are and the substance from which we are made. Jesus said it the same way. In Luke 6, 43, he says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And so the kicker here isn't just learning to manage the tongue. It's not just trying to figure out how to um, tame the outward manifestation of the things that are going on in our minds and our hearts, but because the tongue is just revealing things. And so if angry words are coming out of your mouth, you can be sure that there is anger in your heart. And you think, well, I mean, I'm not an angry person. Just, you know, once or twice a month, I blow up every once in a while. Yeah, you're, that's an angry person. And so there is something of substance producing that. If there is cynicism continually coming out of your mouth, that's because you've become a cynical person. If there is malice, that's because there is malicious ideology that you've been storing up inside of the storehouses of your life. If there is pain in your life, likely it will come out with painful words. If there is self-doubt, it will often come out as words that tear down others. If you're stressed or tired, anyone been there? Then it's likely that you have a lack of patience and it will open the door for a lot of these other things that I mentioned. 
So this can come out through intentional, catastrophic verbal usage. Like, I wanted to tear that person apart. I was so mad, so angry. What they did was so wrong to me. When that person cut me off, they put my family in danger. I'm going to follow them down. I'm going to tell them exactly what I think of them. And so there's a, uh, there is that version of this that you know at times you are just intentionally like, I am using my words as a weapon, and I am doing it intentionally right now. You knew it would hurt. You wanted to hurt them. There's the version that tells lies, things that are not true, things that you maybe uh, just kind of flow out of your mouth without thinking about it, little exaggerations. But then there's this non-intentional way in which we might passive-aggressively create verbal exchanges where you refuse to enter into the joy of someone else. They get excited, like, man, I just got a new car. Cool, cool. You know how much gas is right now, right? You, you think you can hold that truck uh, uh, every day with the gas? You, you know, that, like, that's awesome. That's cool. I love, I love that you got to go on this sweet vacation. But man, man, like, this must be nice. You know, funds are pretty tight in our house. You see how you can kind of passively, aggressively, and it's not like we never have opportunities to rebuke one another in love. The Psalms and the Proverbs tell us that a rebuke, a good rebuke from a friend is like gold. But they have your best intentions in mind. And so whether it's intentional, verbal, just like I want to tear you down or I'm going to refuse or hold something back. I'm going to wound by not saying things like, hey, man, this is awesome. I'm excited. I got a job promotion. You just kind of, hmm, okay. And you just walk away from them. All of these things are ways in which you steal from that person with your words by withholding them. We one-up each other, right? Have you ever been? I feel like prayers get that way inside of the Christian church. Someone prays, and if you're the next person, you feel like you got to one-up that prayer and just take it a little longer, pray a little deeper, a little bit more faith, and then the next person has to one-up that. But we do it in our life all the time. We do this by one-upping each other. So you intentionally find the bad in what they're celebrating. Or you withhold entering into their joy with them. James is giving us this lesson. James is sending it out to us. He's sending it out to the, 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 the scattered diaspora so that they can learn this lesson because he knows he's seen it cause destruction inside of the church. And so it is a lesson to them. It is a lesson to us personally we need to learn it. We need to observe it. We need to internalize it. We need to practice this. We need to correct ourselves, allow others to correct us because the stakes are high, but words can also be the source of all kinds of unnecessary division and pain inside of a community. It's not just a personal issue that I get to work on on my own. There's a public part to this dehumanizing kinds of movements where we see a spark set ablaze a group of people so that it does harm in mass. I venture to say this, all historic movements started somewhere at some point because there was a good orator behind it. Or at least it got some fuel poured onto the fire that somewhere in there, a person was able to inspire somebody towards hatred of someone or something, or they were able to inspire allegiance to someone or something, or they were inspiring them to good things and getting them excited about doing something. But often what we've seen are these massive movements of evil. This is what we saw Hitler do. He used his words to inspire a movement that still has ramifications today. 
is so what would it be like to be the opposite of that? What, if, if words can cause a movement like Nazism and an entire Holocaust, reverse that thing. What could words powerfully use to inspire hope and love and helping one another and, and the, the, uh, the, uh, the fortified humanization of others? What kind of good movement could we cause that is the equal opposite? Powerfully moving good towards the kingdom on this side. Because that's what he's saying. These things can curse, but they can bless and if we see it do that level of harm, we can see it do that level of good in our day. And so here's the questions that I want us to maybe consider before we head out today. If the words say, tell us what we are made of, what substance we are, then what substance are you made of? What's inside of you? What do the words that you say reveal about the things that are in your heart and inside of your mind? If anger produces angry words, then pain, and pain can produce pain, then healing words come out of somebody who's been healed. So if there's pain in your heart, how about we get that thing healed so you can start building out words that heal and bring life? If you have joy inside, it's because you have, or if you have joy coming out of your mouth, it's because you have joy and praise inside. If you have built your identity in Christ, there are kingdom words that encourage others and build them up like my friend Randy said. A heart that finds confidence in Christ has the ability, instead of uh, uh, accomplishing things for themselves can, and, and, um, and uh, competing with others, can rejoice in the victories of others and help build them in and fortify them and come alongside them. A heart at rest. Is, is going to speak words that are peaceful. And so what are the equal opposites of the negative things that God is using? I think it's often true that the enemy wants to tempt you to go against the way God has created you, to go against the callings God has put inside of you. And so what would you do to reverse those things? The ultimate fix here is, uh, and I don't mean to minimize this, but it's the gospel story. That he created all things good, but then this fall took place and God said, quickly, I'm going to give you a promise. We're going to fix this thing together. I'm going to bring you back into relationship with me. And then I'm going to pay the price so that you can be a part of this movement that takes things forward. So whatever negative thing has come out of your mouth, gospel that thing. What's the equal opposite thing you can begin doing? Reverse those words and begin to do the thing that God has created you to do as you begin to speak words of joy and healing and helping people find their identity and resting and speaking peace into tension in the midst of the things that are going on in your life. We want to be a healed, rested, settled in God, joyful in God's presence people because when we store that up, Jesus told us those are the kinds of words that are going to come out of our mouths. So be transformed by the gospel. Don't just try to manage your tongue. Be transformed and allow the things that are being stored in you to come out of your mouth. It may take uh, uh, some, some difficult conversations. Maybe there's some people you need to go to and repent to. Maybe you've torn some people down or spoken Lashonhara over them. Maybe you have used your words to create havoc in an area. And God tells us at times we need to go to that person and make that thing right. Maybe the pain inside of you needs some counseling. 
Maybe it needs some prayer. Maybe it needs therapy. Maybe it needs a change in what your routine is. But whatever it takes to get you there, don't just modify what comes out of your mouth. You've heard this saying, like, if you really want to look smart, just whenever you're in a conversation, don't speak, because then nobody knows how dumb you might be. Anyone heard that before? I heard that as a kid. Just stay quiet. That's not what I want. Transform what's inside. That's not what God wants. Transform what's inside because as individuals, when we begin to work on this thing and we gospel the, th the things that are going on in our heart, we're able to speak words that are good news and gospel to others. A river, an ocean of living water flowing out of abundance, life, love, building each other up as a community. And we can become this kind of community. Do you believe that? We can become this kind of community, secure in our identity and able to speak words of love and life. And that's how I want to end today. I want to, I want to sing um, here. We're going to do one more song a cappella together, the doxology before we take communion. But I want to go before God in prayer and just ask him to make this true of our congregation. Would you join me with an open heart? God, whatever it takes, if I need to repent, let me know. If I need to change something, if I need healing, God, whatever it's going to take. Would you say amen to a prayer that would allow us to be transformed so that we can be a community of living water flowing out? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much um, for uh, this word that you've given us. Thank you so much for James. He comes at us uh, a bit directly, Lord. <laughs> and so maybe that's hard to take, but with open hearts and minds, we know that we usually get defensive when someone wants to change us. So Lord, we don't want to come and engage with the scriptures and be the same on the other side. We're asking for change. And so God, would you allow the gospel to change the things that are going on in our heart that flow out with anger or cynicism or restlessness or competition or negativity in any form? Would you erase the Lashon Hara, the evil from our tongue, and like Isaiah, with a coal from heaven, burn the lips of our congregation that we would be given a calling out of the things we've done. So if we've torn down, God, give us a calling, commission us out to be those who build up. If we've spoken death, help us to transform that and become a people who speaks life everywhere we go, Lord. So transform us from the inside out, God. Convict us if we have someone we need to talk to and apologize to, Lord. I pray, God, that that, that, that would uh, 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 cover a multitude of sins and forgiveness would take place. And ultimately, God, would you allow these words that the, the small organ that is our tongue will begin to set ablaze good things upon this earth. So, Father, we ask for these things with open hearts and open minds, and we ask for it in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen.